Well, there's always endless debate uh, between the sort of nature and nurture of children, Um, but it's always a fascination to me uh, just to see the kind of children of friends and and to wonder quite how they came to be the way they are. Uh, We've got uh, a couple of friends who, in in the church family here, a very mild and gentle couple by all accounts, and yet these friends have been greatly blessed with what you can only describe as a very strong, single-minded and feisty daughter. And you do think, where did she come from? Well, it became a little clearer to me when a mutual friend let me in on a secret. Mum's nickname as a child was the triumph of the will. The triumph of the will. And suddenly it all makes sense. This irrepressible bundle of determination came from her mother's side. Well, as we continue through the Lord's Prayer, we come to a phrase that doesn't often, I don't think, come naturally to any of us, whatever our age or temperament. Jesus says that his followers should pray, Father, your will be done. And I think more often than not, we kind of hope he won't answer the prayer. Because if the truth be told, sometimes we prefer it to be my will rather than thy will be done. Of course, praying about the will of God is something that is parodied by atheists. Uh, I've just been reading, I'm in the process of reading um, uh, Christopher Hitchens' book, uh, God is Not Great. And he pours withering scorn in the book in believers praying to God about anything. Uh, He says this, The Aztecs had to tear open a human chest cavity every day just to make sure that the sun would rise. Monotheists are supposed to pester their deity more times than that, perhaps lest he be deaf. Of course, the irony of Hitchin's mockery is that the problem of deafness lies closer to home than he imagines. The Bible insists that the heavens declare the glory of God, that day after day they pour forth speech. But of course, the problem is that men block their ears and refuse to listen. Now, I know as believers that we don't imagine that God is deaf, but sometimes the way we pray, it seems to be that we imagine that he is indifferent to our lives. Praying about God's will amongst many Christians sounds like a rather joyless resignation to some sort of divine fatalism. You know, the way people talk, that if it's going to make my life more difficult and more miserable, it must be the Lord's will. Of course, at the other extreme is is the obsession of those with the Lord's will that actually ends up trivialising it. Um, Some of you will know the the Cudmore family here. Tim and I go back a long way. We train together as as dental students. And I remember when Tim was working out in Zambia, writing to me about a missionary couple who had joined them. And there were several homes that they could live on on the site. Uh, And this couple, who had uh, one child, had the option of a two-bedroom property or a four-bedroom property. Now, they were utterly persuaded that it was the Lord's will for them to live in the four-bedroom property. And the reason was that the curtains that they had shipped from the United States of America fitted the windows, and therefore it must be the Lord's will. Well, Jesus encourages his followers to pray, Father, your will be done. So the question is, what does he mean by the Father's will? And why should we pray it? 
I think it's always interesting that for contemporary believers in the West, mention God's will and we invariably think about personal guidance. The many choices that are before us. So, you know, the question in terms of marriage, should I wed Robert or Richard? In terms of career, should I plumb pipes or, as here with so many people, plumb intestines? Or in terms of a home, should I live in the valley of the shadow that is fullwood? Or should I live in the sunny of blustery heights that is Lodgemore? Those are the kind of questions we think about when we think about the Lord's will. I suspect that there are few people historically and globally who have as many choices as we do about those sorts of things. I think it must be almost unique in world history. We're so used to we have, having so many choices before us that we think almost naturally much more about my will than God's will. There's a great bit in one of Jasper Ford's novels where he satirises our desires to choose what we want out of life. He says this, With a nation driven by the concept of choice, a growing faction of citizens who thought life was simpler when options were limited had banded together into what they called the no choices. They demanded the choice to have no choice. Prime Minister Redmond van der Post condemned the violence but explained that the choice of choice over just better services was something that the previous administration had chosen and was thus itself a no-choice principle for the current administration. Alfredo Traficone, MP, leader of the opposition prevailing Wind Party, was quick to jump on the bandwagon, proclaiming that it was the inalienable right of every citizen to have the choice over whether they had the choice or not. The no-choices had suggested, rather ironically, that there should be a referendum to settle the matter once and for all, something that the opposition choice faction had no option but to agree with. More sinisterly, the militant wing, known known only as no option, were keen to go farther. They demanded that there should be only one option on the ballot paper, the no-choice one. See, when you live in a culture that's just all the time used to making decisions and choices in a way that we are, you begin almost naturally to think that choice is my inalienable right and it's all about my life and the detail. Is that really what Jesus means when he says, Father, your will be done? And of course, what Jesus encouraged, he exemplified, didn't he? Facing the agony of the cross, Jesus prayed, My Father, If it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. So what does Jesus mean then when he encourages believers to pray for the Father's will to be done? Well, when the Bible speaks about God's will, it does so in at least two different ways. There is God's will in the sense of his decrees, his eternal plan. And there's God's will in terms of his precepts, as Psalm 103 puts it, his his moral will, his guidance about what's right and wrong in terms of the way we live. So number one, God's decrees, his eternal plan. The Bible teaches us that before the creation of the world, God's eternal plan was to bring salvation through the cross of Christ. So when Jesus himself prays as he does in the Garden of Gethsemane for God's will to be done, he means God's will in the sense of his eternal plan of salvation in the cross 
and the resurrection and the ascension, the plan that God has decreed will happen and nothing can thwart. So God says through Isaiah, I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. So the prayer for God's will to be done is clearly linked with the prayer for God's kingdom to come. God's kingdom comes now when individuals subject their wills to the will of God's King, Jesus. And so to pray that God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven is actually to pray for the extension of God's kingdom. It is to pray that people from every tribe and tongue and nation will come to trust Christ and then Christ will return and God's will will finally be done on earth as it is in heaven. All of that is God's eternal plan and what God has planned will be a reality on the last day. So Revelation 6 says that there will be on the last day a great multitude that no one can count from every nation and tribe and people and language. And Jesus says it is to that end that we should pray. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now of course that raises a question, doesn't it? Why pray for what is certain to happen? There's the same kind of troubling question that comes in verse 8 of Matthew 6. Jesus has just been teaching about the futility of babbling like pagans in verse 7. And he gives a rather surprising reason in verse 8. It is a surprising reason, isn't it? Jesus says, don't pray like this. Why? For your Father knows what you need before you ask him. You think, well, why pray? Why pray? Because God knows what you're going to say before the words even form on your lips. Why pray God's kingdom come, God's will be done, when there is nothing in all the universe that is more certain? There will be, on the last day, an innumerable international community trusting Christ the King. So why pray for what's certain? One of those things, when you read the Bible, you actually begin to think again, maybe I haven't really understood it. Maybe I haven't really understood what prayer is all about. Why pray for certain things to happen? The coming of God's kingdom, the doing of God's will. Well, let me suggest at least two reasons. Number one. I pray for God's certain decrees because prayer changes me. Prayer changes me. Joel Calvin, the 16th century reformer, puts it wonderfully, I think, when he says this, Our most merciful Father, although he never either sleeps or idles, still very often gives the impression of one sleeping or idling, in order that he might thus train us, otherwise idle and lazy, to seek, ask, and entreat 
him to our great good. See, prayer changes me. Prayer trains me. As Calvin puts puts it, I'm the one who is idle and lazy, not God. And persistence in prayer is, is not for God's benefit, as if I need to overcome his deafness. Persistence in prayer is at least in part for my benefit, for the Lord needs to correct my skewed priorities. As Jerry Sitzer puts it, persistence in prayer clarifies our mind, reinforces our determination and deepens our desire for the things that really matter. Or as Eugene Peterson puts it, prayers are not tools for doing or getting, but for being and becoming. Why pray for God's certain decrees? Because prayer changes me. And so we pray, Lord, your will be done. We pray for that certain, innumerable international community who will trust Christ on the last day, confident that it will happen and changed ourselves by the very act of praying. Changed in the sense that we don't give up speaking to family and friends and neighbours about Christ the coming King. See, the Bible never ever pits God's sovereign decrees against human responsibility. Rightly understood, God's will in the sense of his eternal decrees is an incentive to active evangelism, not towards a kind of passivity. I always think that George Whitfield is an amazing example of somebody who really understood that. George Whitfield, the great 18th century evangelist, who preached to crowds, even if you halve the numbers people say he preached to, he preached to crowds of 10, 20, 30,000 people in the open air without a microphone. You know, I struggle with a couple of hundred people. But Whitfield was utterly persuaded that God was sovereign in bringing that great international community of people to faith in him. Whitfield believed what Paul puts it in Ephesians 1. He believed that God chose believers in Christ before the creation of the world. That God's will was certain. And yet confidence for him, far from diminishing his commitment to evangelism, it enlarged it. So in a debate with somebody at at one point where they were discussing this whole idea of God's certain decrees, Whitfield said this. He said, I am more determined to go out into the highways and hedgeways. If the Pope himself would lend me his pulpit, I would gladly proclaim the righteousness of Christ therein. So, the Bible speaks about God's will in the sense of God's decrees, his eternal, unstoppable plan. Why pray for what is certain to happen? Well, number one, because prayer changes me. But number two, because God delights to do his will in answer to the prayers of his people. God delights to do his will in answer to the prayers of his people. See, the prayers of God's people are the very way that God has chosen to bring his will to completion. Which is why believers are to take the promises of the Bible and turn them into prayers. For those prayers are the very way that God has chosen to bring his promises to pass. There's a wonderful line in the book of Ezekiel where God says to the people, 
Once again, I yield to the plea of the house of Israel. Once again, I yield to the plea of the house of Israel. In other words, God chooses again and again and again to use the prayers of believers as the way he brings about his plans for the world. So why pray for what is certain? Because God delights to do his will in answer to the prayers of his people. And if you understand that, doesn't it change the way you think about praying? We're not twisting God's arm to do something that he doesn't want to do. Rather, in praying the promises of scriptures, we are being involved in the very way that God intends to bring about his plans for the world. Dale Ralph Davis puts it like this, what honour God confers on us. What honour God confers on us. Not as robots, but as servants who should have no higher ambition than to pray down his will. And so tomorrow morning, you're stuck in another traffic jam on the way into work and you remember to pray for friends and colleagues and family. Or it's after the school run and you snatch a few minutes to pray for the mums in the toddler group before you know, the baby needs feeding and the house needs tidying and the phone needs answering. Or, or tomorrow you sit by the bed of a relative or friend who is suffering in hospital and feeling your huge inadequacy. You send up a few arrow prayers for faint faith to grow in the life of this person that you love. And in all these situations and more, do you not often feel that your prayers are so inadequate and so brief and too muddled and too infrequent? And then you remember that God delights to do his will in answer to the prayers of his people. And so we are encouraged. We are encouraged to go on praying the promises of Scripture that God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So when the Bible speaks about God's will, it sometimes means God's decrees, his eternal plan of salvation, secured in Christ and proclaimed by the church. But there's a second way in which the Bible speaks about God's will. And it's this, God's will as his precepts, as Psalm 103 puts it, his moral law. In other words, the Bible speaks about God's will often in the sense of how we should live, what's right and what's wrong. Just flick over to Matthew chapter 7 and verse 21 and you'll see an example of this. Matthew 7, 21, at the end of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus speaks about God's will in terms of God's eternal decree. But in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 21, he talks about God's will in terms of his moral law, his precepts. Matthew 7, 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So Jesus says that the mark of true faith is not mere profession, but obedience. Not just talking the talk, but walking the walk. 
God's will for my life is that I do what the Bible says. I always think it's ironic that when we talk about God's will for our lives, it's often accompanied with the anxiety that is born of uncertainty. We wish that we knew what God's will for our lives was, by which we mean we wish we knew what we should do with our lives, you know, where we should live and what job we should take and, and what we should do with our retirement. But when I understand that one of the key ways in which the Bible speaks about God's will are as his precepts, as his moral guidance, when I understand that, I see that my real problem is rarely ignorance about God's will, it is invariably disobedience to God's will. It's not that God is uninterested in the detail of our lives, in, in marriage, in houses, in careers. The Bible says the very hairs on your head are numbered. So it cannot be that God is uninterested in the detail of our lives. But when you understand that one of the key ways in which the Bible speaks about God's will is his direction about what is right and wrong in the way we live, when we, when we understand that, then it changes the way we think about God's will. For God's will is crystal clear, isn't it? Gossip, greed, lies, pride, lust, adultery. Are any of those God's will for my life? No. The Bible's crystal clear. So the problem is not that I don't know God's will, the problem is that I don't obey God's will. Or put more positively, is it God's will that I love my wife as Christ loved the church? Is it God's will that I teach the Bible to my children? Is it God's will that I share with God's people who are in need, that I practice hospitality? Are those things God's will for my life? Yes. So the problem I have is not that I don't know God's will, but that I don't do it. My problem isn't ignorance, but disobedience. See, as the confession puts it, it is true that we do sin against God through ignorance and through weakness. But we also sin against God through our own deliberate fault. There is in all of us a, a battle of wills. And invariably our problem is not so much knowing what's in the Bible, but doing it. So when we pray, your will be done, we're actually praying, as Paul encourages us in Romans 12, to be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we will be able to test and approve what God's will is. In other words, we need to be transformed so that we not only know God's will for our lives, we not only know how God wants us to live, but we're also persuaded that God's will is good and pleasing and perfect. My problem is not so much that I don't know these things, it is that I need to be persuaded at the very depths of my being that they're true. See, the fact is that obedience is often very costly. For some of our brothers and sisters who suffer for Christ around the world even today, that is true in a way that we will perhaps never understand. But even for us, and the relative inconvenience that our faith brings to us, there is a cost. So join with the office gossip 
and suddenly you're everyone's friend. Refuse to get involved and suddenly you're one of those holier-than-thou people. But if God's will is good, really good, then even when it's costly, even when it feels difficult, even when there's a battle that rages within my soul, I know that I need to pray, your will be done. It's true, we don't obey to secure God's forgiveness. Forgiveness only comes in the cross of Christ. But as forgiven children, do we we not want to obey and do God's will because it brings delight to our Heavenly Father? Isn't there something really wonderful in seeing the delight of a young child bringing delight to her parents? Now, Mummy, Daddy, look what I've done for you. God's will is good and pleasing. Obedience pleases our Heavenly Father. And we need to be persuaded that God's will is good and pleasing and also that it is perfect. You see, God never ever does a Gordon Brown. He never gets it wrong so that he has to kind of backtrack and apologise. There's never a time when he admits that there were unforeseen problems with his decisions and yes, he thought it was the best way to do things at the time but he got it wrong and now he's re-examined the detail. Things need to change. God's will is perfect. The way God tells us to live in the Bible is the right way to live. Whatever the world says, whatever our heart tells us, however great the battle within, God's will for my life is good and pleasing and perfect. And so we pray, your will be done. Well, there's one final thing to note just in terms of thinking about God's will. We've thought about God's will in terms of his decrees, in terms of his precepts. The final thing I just want to note is is the idea of location because there's something very surprising in what Jesus says. Jesus says in Matthew 6, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. See, I think it's surprising because so much of the focus of our Christianity is heaven, whereas the ultimate focus of the Bible is actually on a renewed earth. It's interesting, you read, say, um, Revelation, and you discover that even the martyrs in heaven now are not content with that situation. Revelation chapter 6 and verse 10 They cry out in a loud voice, How long, Sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? See, what the martyrs in heaven long for is not to remain where they are. What they long for is God to bring justice on the earth. So Jesus encourages believers to pray, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. See, as Richard Pratt points out, Jesus doesn't teach that heaven is our destiny. Jesus teaches that heaven is our standard. Which is why we had Psalm 103 read, because David praises the perfect obedience of the angels to God's will. And that, Jesus said, should be our standard of obedience too. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Now, in the first place, that has to mean that people need to come under the rule of God's king as they hear and believe the gospel. Which is why the Great Commission in Matthew 28 is the central role of the church. For it is the gospel that recreates me. The gospel recreates me. It makes me truly human so that I can be part of the new creation. If anyone is in Christ, Paul says, he is a new creation. But as people come under the sound of the gospel, as people repent and believe the good news about Jesus, it is not to escape from this earth to clouds and harps and celestial choirs. It is to do God's will now, here on earth. In our families, in our workplaces, in our communities, as we engage with and seek to impact God's world wherever he pleases, as a visible demonstration that Christ truly is Lord. Personally, I think the kind of ideas that go around but the earth is sort of destined for destruction is a misunderstanding of 2 Peter 3. The idea that everything we do in this world that isn't evangelism is destined for the landfill is just not what the Bible teaches. Of course, evangelism has to be central in everything we do. Why? Well, because as Dan Strange puts it, transformation of the earth will not come by an imposed morality... Transformation of the earth will come by men and women being converted and willingly submitting themselves to the rule of the King of Kings. But as people come under the rule of Christ, they are then to labour to live fully human lives here on earth. Even though this world is marred by sin and death, which is why Jesus says we should pray Lord, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Al Walters puts it like this. Forgive me, it's rather a long quote, but it's helpful. He says, by far the largest part of our existence is involved in the everyday stuff of everyday life. We sleep, we work, we eat, we rest, we tell stories, we sing songs, we play games, we get married... We raise our children, we tend the sick, we visit our relatives, we bury and mourn the dead. Even if we are pastors or missionaries or evangelists, we spend most of our earthly lives doing these everyday activities. It is precisely in these everyday, ordinary activities that the Christian community is called to witness to the gospel. The very shape of our lives needs to be a legible letter speaking of Christ and his rule. When we do explain the gospel, such a verbal presentation should be embedded in the warp and woof of our daily Christian lives. It is the richly textured glory of created human lives restored in Christ It is in that that God wants to be glorified as we serve and bear witness to him. In order that the world can see what redeemed human life looks like with Christ as king. So that all the world can see what redeemed human life looks like with Christ as king. So we pray, Lord, your will be done.
Lord, your will be done in the nations coming to hear and believe the gospel and trust in Christ. Thankful that prayer changes me. Amazed that God delights to extend the rule of Christ in answers to the prayer of his people. We pray, Lord, your will be done in obedience to God's word in my life. Longing that I would be more and more persuaded that God's will is good and pleasing and perfect. And we pray, Lord, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. On earth, in the richly textured glory of created human life restored in Christ. So that everything we do and say, people will look and see what redeemed human life is like and what a difference it makes to live with Christ as King.